Hi, everyone. We thank you for joining us for today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller, letting you know that as you file in, you are in the right place. Going to wait about another 30 seconds or so, or one minute rather, and get things going then. But again, wanted to let you know you're in the right place and welcome. Hello again, everyone logging on. Want to let you know you're in the right place. This is the Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Going to get things going in about 30 seconds from now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, OSHA Training for General Industry, Reviewing the Elements for Select Topics, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and we'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start a presentation, but first, let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. For that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Rachel Krupsack and Holly Pups. Rachel is an EHS editor at JJ Keller, who manages publications covering employee safety training, hazard communication compliance, and OSHA rules for general, general industry. Her areas of expertise include hazard communication, hearing conservation, training requirements, bloodborne pathogens, and emergency action plans. Holly is an EHS editor at JJ Keller, who joined the organization in 2021. She's a former OSHA compliance officer with more than a decade of industrial safety experience in areas including warehousing, pharmaceuticals, the public sector, and plastics manufacturing. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Rachel, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. JJ Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, such as training on demand, DVD, streaming audio, and video books to help you meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. So on behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. So one of the most challenging areas for any environmental health and safety or EHS professional is safety training. It's a big concern and we get a lot of questions from employers. In this webcast, we'll attempt to answer some of those questions. First, we'll show you where to find OSHA training regulations for general industry, and we'll touch on state requirements. Then we'll explore the risks of non-compliance. 
And finally, we'll discuss seven key general industry training topics, which are shown there on the slide. And for each of these topics, we'll go over who needs training and provide an overview of the training requirements, the elements that you need to include in your training. There's no one size fits all OSHA regulation or requirement when it comes to training. Many of OSHA's standards include explicit safety and health training requirements. And some of these standards require training or instruction while others require adequate or effective training or instruction, and still others require training in a manner or in language that's understandable to employees. But regardless of the precise regulatory language, these requirements reflect OSHA's belief that training is an essential part of every employer's safety and health program. So the first place to look for training requirements is in the federal OSHA standards. And this is the first of four slides listing general industry regulations with training requirements. And you might fall under any number of these specific regulations. And as we walk through these next several slides pointing out well over 70 general industry regulations with training requirements, don't get too overwhelmed. While these regulations do have training requirements, it's likely that not all of them apply to you. If the regulation doesn't apply to work that your employees are performing, you don't need to train on that particular topic. So here, access to employee exposure and medical records is highlighted in red because we wanted to bring this an important detail to your attention. So according to um, paragraph G of 1910-1020, when an employee first enters employment and annually after that, you must inform them of the existence, location, and availability of any employee exposure and medical records, who's responsible for maintaining and providing access to those records, and the employee's right of access to these records. And with that, I will turn it over to Holly. Thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, so here are some more training requirements. We've highlighted the regulation for injury and illness record keeping. While you know that you have to keep records of employee injuries and illnesses, you might not know that the regulation requires you to inform employees of the following. First off being that the employees have a right to report work-related injuries and illnesses. You also have to tell them how they are to report that workplace injury or illness and what the procedure is for following through. And then lastly, that you are prohibited from discharging or in any manner discriminating against employees for reporting any sort of safety and health concern or injury and illness. Next slide, let's see. Note that the fire extinguisher requirement is highlighted here as well. A frequent question that we get on fire extinguisher training is whether or not employees have to have hands-on training. If you have employees who are designated to fight a fire in the event of an emergency, then those employees are to receive annual hands-on training. We'll talk about this a little bit more later on in the presentation. Another question we're frequently asked is whether there's an annual training requirement for telecommunications. The regulations do not have an annual requirement, but OSHA would expect that you provide refresher training if an employee is not using safe work practices or otherwise appearing to need additional training. We've listed all the toxic and hazardous substances on the slide that also have training elements 
These are found in subpart Z of, of 29 CFR 1910. So if you have any of these substances, then you're gonna have training requirements for each. In addition to the federal OSHA standards, you must comply with, that you must comply with, many states and territories have been approved by OSHA to operate their own safety and health programs. These state plan states must have standards that are at least as effective as the federal OSHA rules and that they may have additional requirements that could involve employee training. Many of these states adopt the federal OSHA rules as is, but this isn't always the case. So in any case, it's a good idea to make sure you check your state requirements. So when it comes to training, what are the risks of non-compliance? No one wants to be out of compliance, but if you've ever been tempted to cut costs by sidetracking training, consider there are some serious consequences. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you don't provide training, obviously you're at risk for some large OSHA fines. Training violations are typically cited as serious violations, meaning they could have long-term effects or cause broken bones or be much more severe than an administrative one. Um, but these can carry fines at the, at the federal level of over $1,400 each. Another risk of noncompliance, obviously, is going to be workplace injury, illnesses, or the possibility of a fatality. When an employee isn't sure of what they're doing, they have an increased risk of injury and illness. These come at a cost that are likely to be higher than the OSHA fines. Some direct cause costs include the medical bills, repair to damaged equipment, product loss, cost to hire and, tra and train replacement workers. You'll also wanna consider some of these indirect costs, such as decreased morale when employees feel like the company doesn't care about them, lost productivity in coworkers, increases in your workers' compensation premiums, and lost business contracts due to having higher experience modification rates or having certain OSHA violations on your record. In addition, your reputation in the community and the industry can also take it a pretty big hit if an injury, illness, or fatality is publicized. And with that, I'll hand it back to Rachel. All right, thanks, Holly. So bloodborne pathogens is the first of seven training topics we're going to cover. So first, take a look, let's take a look at who needs to be trained. The regulations say that all employees with occupational exposure to bloodborne pathogens need to be trained. So what constitutes occupational exposure? Well, this is defined in the regulations as reasonably anticipated skin, eye, mucous membrane, or parenteral contact with blood or other potentially infectious materials that may result from the performance of an employee's duties. So while healthcare immediately springs to mind as an occupation with occupational exposure, this definition, definition could encompass a variety of jobs that maybe you haven't considered, such as first aiders or housekeepers, maintenance workers, or maybe security personnel or others, and they may have occupational exposure by definition. Employees must be trained prior to initial occupational exposure to bloodborne pathogens, and at least annually thereafter. And they must be trained when there are changes, such as modifications of tasks or procedures, 
or the institution of new tasks or procedures which affect the employee's exposure. This additional training may be limited to addressing the new exposures created. So what topics need to be covered in bloodborne pathogens training? First, employees must have, an, have access to a copy of the bloodborne pathogen standard and an explanation of its contents. A qualified trainer must provide a general explanation of the epidemiology and symptoms of bloodborne diseases, as well as explanations of the following. How bloodborne pathogens are transmitted, your exposure control plan and how employees can get a copy of it, the appropriate methods for recognizing tasks and other activities that may involve exposure to blood and other potentially infectious materials, and the use and limitations of methods that will prevent or reduce exposure, including appropriate engineering practices, work practices, and personal protective equipment, or PPE. Explanations also must be given on the basis of selection for PPE, the procedures to follow if an exposure incident occurs, and this includes the method of reporting the incident and the medical follow-up that will be made available, and the signs and labels or the color coding required in paragraph G1 of 1910-1030, and these relate to communicating hazards to employees. Holly? So the regulations for bloodborne pathogens say that information must be provided on the following topics. The types of PPE, their proper use, where they're kept, how to get rid of them, how to handle them, decontaminating and disposing of them. It also includes the hepatitis B vaccine, where you have to inform employees on how effective it is, its safety, how it's administered, the benefits of being vaccinated, and that that vaccine or that series of vaccines will be offered to you free of charge. In addition, training must also include information about the appropriate actions to take and persons to contact in an emergency that involves blood or other potentially infectious materials, as well as the post-exposure evaluation and follow-up that you, the employer, are required to provide employees in the event of an, an exposure incident. Additional training is required for employees on HIV or in HIV and hepatitis, excuse me, hepatitis laboratories um, and production and facilities. This training must be in addition to the training requirements we previously talked about on the, the last slides and details can be, find, can be found in the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard. So while most regulations do not address how that, that training must be presented, the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard contains a number of requirements on this point. First, the training must be provided to employees at no cost and during normal working hours. Second, the training must contain material that's appropriate in content and vocabulary to the education level, literacy, and language of the employees and trainings. Basically, all employees need to be able to understand it. Third, it must include an opportunity for interactive questions and answers with their trainer. And finally, it must be conducted by a person knowledgeable in the subject covered by the elements contained in the training program as it relates to the workplace that the training will address. In addition to demonstrating expertise in this area, 
the occupational in the area of occupational bloodborne pathogen exposure hazards, the trainer must be familiar with the manner in which the elements of the training program relates to that particular workplace. Possible trainers include a variety of healthcare professionals, but non-healthcare professionals such as industrial hygienists, safety professionals, or professional trainers can be used as well. Next slide, please. While OSHA's regulations do not always include a requirement for training records, bloodborne pathogens is one of the few regulations that does. It says that employers must keep training records and maintain them for at least three years from the date in which the training occurred. These records must contain the following information, the dates of the training sessions, the what was covered during those training sessions, the name and qualifications of the persons conducting the training, as well as the names and job titles of all of the persons who attended the training sessions. The regulations also specify that training records must be made available upon request, both for examination and copying to employees, employee representatives, and OSHA. And with that, we go back to Rachel. Okay, so now let's take a look at hazard communication. So hazard communication, or HAZCOM, is regularly found in OSHA's list of top 10 violations. And inadequate or a lack of training is often cited as a violation. So let's take a look at what the regulations require for training. First, employees with exposure or potential exposure to hazardous chemicals must be trained. So what does this mean and who does it include? HASCOM defines exposure or exposed to mean that an employee is subjected to a hazardous chemical in the course of employment through any route of entry, such as inhalation, ingestion, skin contact, or absorption, and this includes a potential exposure, which would be accidental or a possible exposure. Employers can train on specific chemicals or categories of chemical hazards, like flammability or sensitivity. Chemical-specific information must always be available through labels and safety data sheets, or SDSs. Employees must be trained at the time of initial assignment prior to initial exposure and whenever a new chemical hazard is introduced. There is no annual training requirement. And while HASCOM doesn't have a requirement for refresher training, it's a best practice to periodically revisit training. And training must cover what's on a label, which includes the product identifier, signal words, pictograms, hazard statements, and precautionary statements, how employees might use labels in the workplace, such as for determining safe storage practices, how label elements work, the format of the STS with its 16 sections, and how the label information relates to STS information. Employees also must be trained on how to detect hazardous chemicals in the work area, such as monitoring conducted by the employer or continuous monitoring devices. They also must be trained on the physical, health, simple asphyxiation, combustible dust, and pyrophoric gas hazards, as well as hazards not otherwise classified of the chemicals in the work area. They also must know how to protect themselves from these hazards, which would include appropriate work practices, emergency procedures, and PPE. And they also finally must know the details of the written HASCOM program you've developed, including an explanation of labels and SDSs. The regulations don't specify requirements for the trainer, 
but OSHA expects that that person would have the knowledge and understanding to present the information so it's understandable to all employees and that it's specific to the workplace. If employees are given work instructions in another language, the training must be provided in that language. And likewise, if employees have low literacy, training should be provided so that they can understand it. For example, you may use verbal instruction versus reading documents. Regarding multi-employer work sites, OSHA says the employer is responsible for providing updated training when their employees are exposed to new hazards, even if these hazards are created by other employers. HASCOM continues to be one of the most challenging areas for safety professionals. JJ Keller Training on Demand will help you meet mandatory HASCOM training requirements. But beyond HASCOM, JJ Keller Training delivers 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries. If you'd like more information on JJ Keller's training, use the poll on your screen to select your areas of interests. And since JJ Keller Training is sponsoring today's event, anyone interested in learning more about our training solutions will also receive a complimentary HASCOM training white paper. While HASCOM doesn't require training records, it's definitely a best practice to maintain them. This way you know who's been trained and when, and you can keep your program organized. And of course, training records are also a good way to prove there's a good, been a good faith effort um, to a compliance inspector that you've complied with the regulations. Holly? Well, thank you again, Rachel. So the next thing we're moving on to is powered industrial trucks or PITs. These include forklifts, powered pallet jacks, stand-up rider trucks, order pickers, and the like. In fact, that's one major compliance issue. Some employers often fail to train operators on each type of powered industrial truck that they operate. <clears throat> Even powered pallet jacks require training under 1910-178, and that training needs to be equipment specific. You don't necessarily have to train each operator on every pallet jack made by different manufacturers, but OSHA does prohibit allowing an operator who only has forklift training to operate a powered pallet jack without receiving additional training. Again, this training must be for each type of equipment. Employees must be trained prior to operating a powered industrial truck without direct supervision. OSHA requires that there is refresher training to be conducted at least every three years and under circumstances uh, excuse me, and refresher training is required when there is an accident or near miss. The operator is a, observed operating equipment unsafely. The operator is assigned a different type of powered industrial truck. When a workplace condition changes that could affect the safe operation of these trucks, or when an evaluation reveals deficiencies. Aside from refresher training, OSHA requires all operators to undergo a performance evaluation at least once every three years. OSHA's requirements for powered industrial trucks are performance oriented to, this allows employers to tailor their training program to the characteristics of their workplace 
and to the particular types of hazards and powered industrial trucks that they operate. The regulations outline truck specific topics that must be covered. These include items listed on the slide. In a 1999 letter of interpretation, OSHA answered a question on whether tr truck related training has to be weight or brand specific. They said that the training isn't based on the weight or the brand, but instead rather whether the employees, excuse me, I, my, my wording today is just going haywire. So instead, <laughs> so training isn't based on the weight or brand, but instead it's based on whether the trucks and employee may operate different, differentiate with respect to any one or more of the truck related topics outlined in the standard. The regulations also outline workplace specific topics also listed on this slide. And a 1999 letter of interpretation, OSHA says whether an operator trained and evaluated at one of an employer's facilities must receive additional training at the next facility on the workplace related topics. This depends on whether the two facilities significantly differ and with respect to one or more of these topics. If the potential hazards addressed in the workplace related topics are the same, then there's no additional training or no additional evaluations that would be required. For example, where all an employer's facilities have substantially similar ramps and narrow aisles, no additional training on those topics would be required. However, additional training would be required if the loads to be carried at different facilities are significantly different in composition or stability from each other. So not all of the regulations have requirements for conducting training, but the powered industrial truck standard is one that does. According to the regulations, training must consist of a combination of formal instruction, such as a lecture, discussion, interactive computer learning, um, videos, written materials, mm -hmm. as well as practical training through demonstrations by a trainer and practice exercises performed by the trainee. And then lastly, an evaluation of the operator's performance in the workplace. The regulation also addresses duplicative powered industrial truck training. There's no need for additional training on a specific topic. If an operator has previously received training on it and it's appropriate to the truck and working conditions encountered and that the operator has been evaluated and found competent in the truck safe to operate that truck safely. So moving on to the trainer qualifications. The regulation says that the trainer must have knowledge, training, and experience necessary to conduct the training. OSHA has said that they left this intentionally as a performance-oriented requirement, believing that the necessary qualification could be obtained in a variety of ways, such as through years of operating a powered industrial truck and knowledge on safe practices and the OSHA regulations. They could go to a train the trainer or similar course or have a combination of experience and training to be a qualified trainer. 
The only specific criteria that OSHA lays out is found in a 2003 letter of interpretation. It says that the trainer must have at some point operated the type of equipment that they are training potential operators on so that they can provide adequate instruction to trainees on how the equipment works, feels, etc. In other words, the worker cannot just simply watch videos and read the forklift regulations to be qualified to conduct training. From there, we go to the documentation. What documentation and training records have to be recorded? You are required as the employer to certify each powered industrial truck operator um, they have to be certified in that they are trained and evaluated by the regulations. The certification is required to include the name of the operator, the date of the training and evaluation, and identify the person performing the training and or evaluation. Rachel? Okay, so now let's address occupational noise exposure. You'll find these training requirements in paragraph K of 1910-95. So first, let's talk about who needs to be trained. The regulation says all employees exposed to noise at or above an eight-hour time-weighted average, or TWA, of 85 decibels, even if the employee is exposed to this level for only one day, need to be trained. Training must be provided initially, prior to noise exposure, and repeated annually. Refresher training must take place if there are changes to hearing protection or work processes. So let's take a look at what topics the training has to cover. This includes the effects of noise on hearing, the purpose of hearing protectors, the advantages, disadvantages, and attenuation of hearing protective devices, or HPDs. And the training also must cover selecting, fitting, use, and care of HPDs, which includes a discussion of the variety of types and sizes of HPDs available, that comfort is an important part of getting a good fit when making a selection, when and where to wear HPDs in the workplace, and how to clean HPDs according to the manufacturer's instructions. Your training also must include a discussion of the purpose of audiometric testing and an explanation of the test procedures. And lastly, the regulation requires that you post a copy of 191095 in the workplace and make it available to employees or the representative upon request. And while the regulations don't address requirements for the trainer or the training format, OSHA's publication shown on the slide says that the training program may be structured in any format with different portions conducted by different individuals and at different times, as long as the required topics are covered. It's a best practice to maintain some record of employees training even though the regulations at 1910-95 don't specifically require it. Back to you, Holly. Apologize, having a moment of technical difficulty. So let's talk about lockout tagout. A good lockout tagout program is only as good as the training. OSHA requires that you train employees based on their duties and or exposures depending on whether they are considered authorized, affected, or other employees. Authorized need the most training, while others need the least. In all cases, employees must understand the purpose and function of your energy control program. 
So your authorized employees are the ones doing the servicing, the maintenance and repair. They apply locks, tags and follow the lockout tagout procedures. Your affected employees operate and use the machine. Um, when the machine is down for servicing or maintenance, the employee can't run it, so she is affected by the equipment being locked out. Affected employees don't do any of the service or maintenance work and have to stay clear of the equipment during these, the lockout tagout processes. And then finally, you have your other employees who are other who work in whose work activities may or may not be in the area where the energy control procedures are used. Now that we have described the three types of employees, let's talk about the levels of training that they need. Authorized, again, need the most detailed training. They must be trained to recognize hazardous energy sources, what type they are, how strong or the magnitude of the energy available, and they must know how to isolate the equipment from its energy sources. Your affected employees need to be trained on recognizing, hey, there's a problem, there's a machine malfunction, and now we need to report the problem to the authorized employees and stay clear while they work. And then your other employees must be instructed about the lockout tagout procedure, about the prohibition um, relating to attempts to restart or re-energize those machines or equipment in which are locked or tagged out. So when lockout tagout or when tagout is used, authorized and affected and other employees must be trained in the limitations of tags. Tags are essentially warning devices and do not provide physical restraint that a lock would. Tags are not to be removed without permission of the authorized person responsible for them and should never be bypassed, ignored, or otherwise defeated because this can because tags especially can evoke a false sense of security. Employees must also be instructed that tags are legible and understandable by all authorized and affected and other employees in order to be effective. They must be made of materials which will withstand the environmental conditions encountered in the workplace and be securely attached to energy isolating devices so they can't inadvertently or accidentally be detached during use. So when it comes to that training, uh, employees, uh, you can go to the next slide, please. Employees must be trained um, initially or per, prior to performing service or maintenance on equipment as a system. They must be trained as needed for employee proficiency and when there are new or revised procedures. There is no annual lockout tagout training requirement. However, it is about best practice to make sure employees stay fresh. The lockout tagout standard does require training documentation. Specifically, the regulation says that you must certify that each employee, that employee training has been accomplished and is being kept up to date. The certification must contain the employee's names and the date of training. Rachel? Okay, thanks, Holly. So now let's talk a little about walking working surfaces. 
You must train employees who use personal fall protection systems, including fall arrest, travel restraint, and positioning devices. And that employees who use equipment such as ladders of all types, ladder safety systems, portable guardrails, designated areas, scaffolds, safety net systems, and rope descent systems. Employees must be trained before initially being assigned to a job where they may be exposed to a fall hazard. And they must be retrained when you observe that they don't have the understanding or skills to safely perform their job, or if there are changes in the workplace or fall protection systems or equipment requiring it. The regulations say that training must be understandable and you must provide information and training in a manner that the employee understands. Training also must be conducted by a qualified person. And the regulations define a qualified person as someone who has a degree, certificate, or professional standing, or has extensive knowledge, training, and experience to solve or resolve problems relating to the subject matter. For example, how to use fall personal fall protection, designated areas, or ladder safety systems, the work, such as working on a roof, or the project. And trainers don't have to have a degree if they have the necessary knowledge, training, and experience to be qualified to train. Employees must be trained in at least the following topics, the nature of fall hazards in the work area and how to recognize them, the procedures to be followed to minimize those hazards, the correct procedures for installing, inspecting, operating, maintaining, and disassembling the personal fall protection systems that the employee uses, and the correct use of personal fall protection systems and equipment, including but not limited to proper hookup, anchoring, and tie-off techniques, and methods of equipment inspection and storage as specified by the manufacturer. It's a best practice to keep a record of all safety and health training, although it's not a requirement under the rule. Holly? Thank you again, Rachel. So going into fire extinguishers, as I promised we had come back to earlier on, the regulations are found in 1910-157, um, section G discusses who needs to be trained. If you have portable fire extinguishers for employee use and or you have, a you have designated certain employees to use firefighting equipment as part of your emergency action plan, those employees must be trained on how to use the fire extinguishers. However, you do not need to provide fire extinguisher training in the following situation. You if you require total evacuation of employees from the workplace immediately when the alarm sounds, no one is authorized to use available portable fire extinguishers or these fire extinguishers are not provided by the company. When you, while you do not have to provide fire extinguisher training in this case, you do have to have an emergency action plan and fire prevention plans that meet the requirements of 1910-38 and 39. An additional situation that you would not have to provide training is if you keep portable fire extinguishers in the workplace, but do not want employees fighting fires and therefore evacuate them to safety. Again, you don't have to provide this training. However, you do have to establish the emergency action plan and fire prevention plan as previously mentioned. Next slide. The regulations require employees to be trained upon initial employment and at least annually thereafter in a position that they would need, would be expected to use these fire 
extinguishers. This applies to situations where fire extinguishers are provided for employee use in the workplace and, and employees have been designated to use firefighting equipment as part of that emergency action plan. Hands-on training is required for all employees who are expected and or designated to use fire extinguishers in the event of an emergency. In addition, you must provide an educational program that familiarizes employees with the general principles of fires and fire extinguisher use and the hazards involved in, with fighting incipient stage fires. In a 1986 letter of interpretation, OSHA says that in meeting requirements of the standard, you may provide additional, additional educational procedures and, excuse me, educational materials without classroom instruction. Though through the use of employee notice campaigns using instruction sheets or flyers or similar types of informal programs or provide on-site training which exposes employees to the actual feeling of firefighting by simulated fires for employees and the proper use of the fire extinguishers. The letter also says that employees must understand that when they permit employees to fight workplace fires, that they have to make sure that employees know whatever is necessary to ensure their safety. In light of this, you have some leeway in, what, in determining what to include in your training. You'll want to address the types of fires that employees may encounter in your workplace, as well as safe fire extinguisher use. In terms of safe extinguisher use, the first step is for the employee to evaluate whether or not the fire can be put out using a portable extinguisher. And only trained employees should be able to make this deter determination. So you are required to instruct your employees to know what types of materials are burning and ensure that they know the correct type of fire extinguisher for that particular type of fire. Can, they must also consider the possible danger posed by hazardous or highly flammable materials. They should have an unobstructed route away from the fire and that they know the proper technique, such as pass the pull, aim, squeeze, sweep method for extinguishing fires. So there are no requirements to keep records under 1910-157. However, it is a best practice to keep them. And as your former OSHA compliance officer, I would still ask you for them. Rachel? Okay, thanks, Holly. So now we'll move on to temporary workers. So whether workers are temporary or permanent, OSHA says that all workers have a right to a safe and healthy workplace. And they say that the, both host and the staffing agency are responsible for ensuring that temporary employees are properly trained. However, the employers may jointly review the task assignments and job hazards to determine a division of compliance responsibilities. And typically the staffing agency provides generic safety training and the host employer provides site-specific training. OSHA has issued a number of temporary worker initiative or TWI bulletins, which are listed on the slide and these pertain to specific topics. The bulletins address what both the staffing agency and the host employer can do to provide safety and health training to temporary workers. 
you may wish to take a look at these if you have temporary workers. So today we covered seven topics with training requirements found in the regulations. While we covered a lot of ground, we hope you've taken away a better understanding of what OSHA requires. We've directed you to regulations, temporary worker initiative bulletins, and other guidance that should support your compliance efforts. Holly? Thanks again. So chances are employee safety training is just one of your many varied responsibilities, but it is a really important one. JJ Keller training can help make this critical yet time-consuming task just a little simpler for you. With our flexible, convenient online courses and video training accessible 24-7, you can train whenever it works for you and your employees. So if you missed the opportunity earlier in the event or maybe join late, we are offering our attendees the chance to receive additional information on our JJ Keller training solutions. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help your training program, please check off one of the boxes on your screen. We will also send you a free copy of our white paper, OSHA Safety Training Basics. And with that, I'll hand it back to the moderators. Well, excellent. No, great job, Rachel and Holly. Thanks for sharing your insights and expertise. Before we do start the q and I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is very important as it helps us to improve our future webcasts. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, I see there are a few there, uh, but keep them coming. And to do that, just click that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button to submit. And once more, if we don't get to your question today, all, an all unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. And with that, we will get to some questions. The first asks, uh, what are options for meeting the requirements of trainees being able to ask questions during BBB training? Um, is it live or in-person trainings are best or is having a phone number to call or email to, uh, or use acceptable as well? Sure, I can take that one. This is Rachel. Um, yes, certainly the live or in-person is best, um, but you can, um, if, if the trainer is able to answer questions at the time that they arise, if they can do this through email or with a phone number, that's okay, but they do have to be available at that time to answer right away. It can't be a, a delayed hours long response to that. Thank you. Next one comes in uh, for Holly. How long should you keep injury records for employees of your organization? So you're, you are required to keep your, um, injury records on site um, for five years as part of your OSHA training logs, your, or not your OSHA training logs, your OSHA 300 logs. So your 300, 300A and 301. Um, but depending on the type of injury or exposure, um, they, are, they may be required to be kept for 30 years plus the duration of employment, especially with chemical exposures or things along those lines. Um, Rachel, did you have anything you wanted to add to that one? No, I think that covers it from my okay. perspective. Sure, <laughs> just making sure, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Got another question that asks, how do we find out what an actual state requires over and above the OSHA requirements without contacting the agency directly, which may or may not arise suspicion? So I can take that one as well. Um, so. 
every state OSHA, OSHA plan has their own websites um, as far as access to their, their uh, standards. Um, I can throw in a ploy for JJ Keller's. We have quite a few state comparisons that let you know if there is a, a change from one plan to another. But without using our services, um, you can compare based on their website to the federal OSHA website, which they have some of that information outlined. Um, if you go to the state plan page on federal OSHA's uh, website, and you click on, let's say, North Carolina, where I am, it shows you which, uh, which standards differ from, North, from the federal OSHA where we might have additional requirements. And then you can go digging further. But you can call OSHA and ask questions without arising suspicion. Um, they are there to help and are much happier to help you on the front end than the back end. So with that get off my soapbox thank you <laughs> oh sure no and sound north carolina's ears may be burning because there was actually a specific question about how to how to find the state plan state for north carolina but as you indicate there's a state plan page within the federal osha site so um, moving on now this one is for rachel when are hazard communication training and retraining required um, training would have to be conducted prior to employees working with chemicals or being exposed to chemicals. And there's not an annual training requirement um, or a specific, I know, pointing out of refresher training, but certainly if you had a new chemical come into the, to the company or a new chemical hazard that you hadn't trained on before, you would need to train at that time. And it's certainly um, a best practice to provide training annually. Next question asks, um, when can you use tag out versus lockout? So tag out is only allowed in very specific circumstances, um, which I don't, I don't have in front of me, but tag out is basically when lockout tag out is absolutely 100% not feasible. Um, so it, it is, it requires a lot of documentation and it is not recommended. Most equipment now has built have built in ways to lock them out, but it's more about legacy pieces that do not have an easy way to lock them out. Um, but in general, lockout lockout is required, and tagout is the very rare one percent circumstance. Next question, getting back to some, some regulations, um, asking, are employees such as housekeepers, maintenance workers, and janitors in non-healthcare facilities covered by the bloodborne pathogen standard? Yes, um, the employees that could be occupationally exposed, whether it is your company or their company, they still are covered under bloodborne pathogens. Um, they do need to be protected because just because they don't work for you does not mean <laughs> that they are not they are not potentially exposed. And so it would be an agreement between your company and their company, especially essentially if they're contracts, um, that they have this necessary training or if they are expected to clean up, say after um, an injury 
that they are trained to do so. And if not, they those employees would be expected to refuse to do that work. I have a question addressed to Rachel asking, what does lockout tagout training for authorized employees need to cover? Sure, that needs to, they need to cover the recognition of um, hazardous energy and the type and magnitude of that energy found in the workplace, the means and methods for isolating and controlling that hazardous energy and how to um, verify the effectiveness of the energy controls and the purpose for the procedures that are being used to lock out the machinery. All right, thank you. Got, got one now for Holly that backtracks to something you just addressed. It's a follow-up asking, are we able to provide emergency bloodborne pathogen cleanup kits without official training if exposure in the workplace is unlikely? So you can have bloodborne pathogen kits, um, but the expectation is that only the person who created the hazardous situation would be cleaning it up. Like if you cut yourself um, messing with a copy machine, um, those bloodborne pathogen kits could be used for you to go clean that up, but you would not be able to have another employee do it in your place. This one was addressed to Rachel asking, how often does hearing conservation training need to be done? Sure, that needs to be conducted before employees are exposed to a hazardous noise level. And that would be an annual training requirement after that. Next question asks, are there any regulations that cover training for golf carts in the workplace? So technically no, um, but training for golf carts, it, you can be cited. Um, so if you have a golf cart in the workplace and there's an accident, someone gets hurt. If OSHA were to come in, they would ask if there's any safe training on this. And while there are no technical requirements listed in any of the OSHA standards, you could still be cited under the general duty clause. So the best practice is you're is training anyone that drives like a side-by-side, -side, a golf cart, um, those little yellow warehouse carts, things along those lines similar to your powered industrial truck standards. So you wanna make sure that people have some classroom training, they have some hands-on time with observation, and then are evaluated to make sure that they can drive that equipment safely and they're not going to put themselves, others, or the company in danger. Getting back to lockout tagout, is it required for disassembling and cleaning equipment? To lock out, equipment uh, to disassemble equipment. It it, yes, it's asking um, when disassembling and cleaning equipment is lockout tagout required? Yes, you would have to uh, lock out the equipment in order to safely disassemble it because of stored energies or your other potential things. So once it is fully disassembled, um, lockout wouldn't be required. But in order to shut it down, in order to disassemble it, lockout would be required. For temporary employees, getting back to that, must the host employer maintain training documents for the temporary employees? And if so, for how long?
Rachel, do you want to get that one or would you like me to? Oh, you can go ahead with that one. Sorry. <laughs> uh, sure. So for your temporary employees, um, because this gets a little complicated uh, depending on how they became a temporary employee, but between you and the temporary employer, you are responsible to, you're responsible for maintaining the training records and which for the training that you conducted. So if they received part of their HASCOM training at the temporary services office, and then you gave them the, the company specific HASCOM training at your, at your facility, you would have to keep those training records the same time frame that you would keep your regular employees. So it can be discarded after a number of years. And I apologize, I don't have that number in front of me. Well, thank you. This next question is addressed uh, to Rachel asking, in regards to chemicals that was listed that required specific training, um, this person's working in a lab and, and using methylene chloride, how often and, and how detailed is the training? Um, he's guessing that general lab safety training would not cover the specifics of the chemical, but would cover general hazards of chemicals. Sure. Um, this the, Specifically for that methylene chloride, you can find the training requirements at 1910 1052, and it's in paragraph L, so you'd have to train employees before, they're, before they use methylene chloride, and then they also have some conditions for refresher training, which are on paragraph L5 and L6 there. So you want to take a look at that, and that'll kind of tell you exactly what you have to do to train and how often. No, we're winding down, and, and I think some other questions may be coming in, but overall, anything left unsaid between the two of you or anything you'd like to, to add on these topics? So training is absolutely a vital portion of your safety and health programs. As a former OSHA compliance officer for the state of North Carolina, it was one of the biggest things that we wrote citations for because we would look to make sure that employees are understanding your training because you can have a written program and the world's best video, but a lot of times the information that management had was not actually what was happening on the floor. So you wanna make sure that your employees are really understanding this information and that they're able to answer questions about how to get to their safety data sheet, what PASS stands for for your fire extinguishers, who's an authorized employee and what does that mean? Because OSHA wants to verify that your training is actually sticking, is not just kind of a pencil whipped activity. So if you have questions, you can reach out. Um, we have a lot of resources and you can always call OSHA. Um, they are much kinder than you think <laughs> they, you think they are, um, but it doesn't trigger question them does not trigger you for an inspection to call and ask questions. And with that, I'll hand it back to you. Well, sure. No, any, uh, anything to that end, Rachel, any closing remarks for you? No, I think that perfectly sums it up from Holly. Thank you. Oh, sure. Well, no, thank you both very much. Unfortunately, we've run out of time this afternoon. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. And once again, we hope you take the time to fill out that forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. 
We'd like to thank Rachel Krupsack, Holly Pups, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.